good to be with you this morning. You know, uh, every time we sing that song, that's an older song, but I'm reminded it's based out of the passage that Justin read to you, and that is the sound. That's the background sound of heaven. If we understand anything about uh, the book of Revelation and about John's vision as heaven is opened to let him look in, uh, we understand that. What a joy it is to understand how important that is that the angels continue to remind us, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What a, what a joy to look forward to that. And that, that should throw your heart, beloved, and I think that it does as you think about all the injustice in the world. John got to have heaven open so he could see in, but one day heaven's going to open up so Jesus will come out and begin to set things straight, and we look forward to that day, and that's the longing for in all of our hearts. So in the meantime, we're told to be slaves who and stewards who faithfully do what he said to do. So let's look in the Word and find out what that is. Open your Bible, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are returning in our study this morning. It's a new study. If you've not been with us, you haven't missed a huge amount. We've done some instructions and, and some introduction on these instructions. But this is a, a, a study we've titled Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. And it's through First and Second Timothy and Titus, and I think that it'll be a, a very beneficial study for us as we can rejoice in all these things that we see. But it, as is our habit, let's open up and start with the Word of God, as that is what we want to study. Starting in verse 1, read there with me if you would. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, verse 2. My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, verse 10, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's stop right there. I read a really great illustration that deals with sound doctrine, and it's based on the old jar full of beans guessing game. You remember that game? It's always part of, you know, fall festivals and fairs and, and uh, homeschooling fun days and all that. You get a, gar a jar full of jelly beans, and people walk up, and they guess how many it is. Well, this instructor has, has put a really great spin on that. I think that you'll enjoy this. So he asked the group to guess, of course, how many beans are in the jar, and on a piece of paper write down their estimates. And uh, then he has them make another list, and he has them on that list write down a list of the best songs ever written. And when the lists are complete, he reveals the actual number of beans in the jar, of course, and then the whole group takes a look at their guesses to see which estimate was closest to being right. And then he turns to their other list 
of the best songs ever written, and he asks, which one of these is closest to being right? And of course, the response is always, there is no right answer to that second list, because that's a person's, uh, those lists are a person's favorites, and that's simply a matter of taste. Then he asks the group this question, when you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is it more like guessing the number of beans in the jar, or more like choosing the list of your favorite songs? After many, many years of asking groups of people, most and all age groups will respond, choosing what one believes in relation to their faith is more like choosing a favorite song. That's shocking, isn't it? Not surprising, but that's, that's shocking. In other words, there's no right list. It's a matter of personal opinion. In one of uh, A.W. Tozer's many books, and Tozer, if you're not familiar with him, was pretty much required reading for young believers of my era when I came to faith. Uh, my pastor handed uh, that one of Tozer's books to me, and I became really hooked on his thoughts and read a lot of Tozer's books. But in this book called Man, the Dwelling Place of God, he says this, quote, we've gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of gray fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of scripture, science, and human sentiment that's true to none of its ingredients because each one works to cancel the others out. Goes on to say, little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power, he says, has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. He says we need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubbornly and firmly on the Word of God that lives and abides forever, end quote. That book was published in 1966. And as old as that book is, the letter to Timothy is much older still, dealing with the same problems that Tozer pointed out, that the professor who's using that bean-counting game pointed out. Because we've begun to see that Paul exhibits a huge concern in the pastoral letters for sound doctrine. It's a concern that continues up until today. And so the letter remains faithfully relevant all the way through now. Paul mentions doctrine. Didascalia seven times in 1 Timothy, not to mention its verbal forms, just in the noun form. In chapter 13, where Timothy is told to command those who teach, not to teach hetero didascaleo, remember we looked at that last time and we'll look at it again, a different kind of doctrine, something that departs from what they've heard. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul exalts to sound doctrine in chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, Paul says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of good R-word teaching that you have followed. In chapter 4, verse 13, again, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to preaching and to, here's our word, teaching. Very simple, isn't it, in the church? Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Jason did that earlier. Uh, Justin did that just a few minutes ago, and so did Tim. Uh, to preaching. And our word, teaching. In chapter 4, verse 16, he tells Timothy, watch your life, and here's our word, doctrine, closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Stay close to, stay right on sound doctrine, because you're going to 
you're going to save yourself and you're going to save your hearers. Chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and are worth teaching. Chapter 6, verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our word teaching may not be slandered. So keep your life straight. You're under the yoke of slavery. Consider your masters worthy of full respect, whoever you serve, whoever you, whoever you work for, so that God's name and the teaching may not be slandered. In chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, if anyone, here's our word, teaches false and another doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly, again, our word teaching, he is considered, uh, conceited and understands nothing. So I think that you could easily say that this is Paul's main focus as he works his way into this first letter uh, to Timothy. And we've noted so far in Paul's repeated emphasis on sound doctrine that we can make this connection that we made early on in our, as we were laying down the foundation of this, a very basic practical purpose for doctrine is that it is to teach the people in Ephesus how to live. In other words, to know how to live and to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. That's chapter 3, verse 15. So sound doctrine is, is then connected to knowing what to do and how to live. And as we pointed out in our illustrations, there's this dynamic connection between our doctrine and the way we live. And people choose, instead of saying, uh, knowing our faith and our doctrine is like guessing the, the amount of beans, which is a fixed amount, and getting as close as you can, and then learning the truth, and then aligning with that. Instead of picking that, what do they pick? They pick my list of favorite songs. It's more like that. I want to pick and choose and just believe what I want to believe. See, It's very opinion-oriented. So there's this dynamic connection between our doctrine and the way we live. So it doesn't surprise us then that church and church people, churches and church people do the things that they do. The truth is directly opposite to much contemporary Christian thinking. And often today we hear people say, you know, we don't need more doctrine. What we need is practical teaching. I have a very close relative of mine who's struggling with that even today in the church where he is. And now, and I would say this, we certainly agree that preaching must be applied, right? I mean, what does the Bible say? What's it mean by what it says? What's the rest? How does that apply to me? I mean, that's, that's what you do when you teach. When I teach, I just try to model what I do every single day, and what I, I think you should do is you read the Bible. Uh, you're not just kind of opening it up and just letting it fall wherever the page is open and just reading that part and just kind of moving on. What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? That's always the questions you ask and as you look at the Bible. So I, there is certainly, teaching needs to be applied, but uh, we must not agree that there's no connection between doctrine and practical. In fact, uh, what we know and believe has everything to do with how we live, uh, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. Doctrine is at the heart of practical living. And so the question is this, do you love God now? I mean, ask yourself that question, do you love God? So then here's another question, will you love him less if you learn more about him? Most likely not, uh, unless you're in love with God the Father or God the Son of your own imagination. And that's very likely today, especially among our younger people. A lot of teens, they, they say they love God, but it's a God that they imagine. It's not the God of the Bible. And in that case, if it's a God of your imagination or a son, the Son of your imagination, then you may hate the messenger and reject the message when you start to find out more about God, what God's really like and what the Son really thinks. Otherwise, 
if you say, yes, I love God, then you would say the more you learn about him, the more you will love him. The more you'll learn of his excellencies, the more you'll love them, right? As you spend time in the Word and you learn more about his promises to you and you more, learn more about the things that he is faithful to do and, and his excellencies and what he's promised and, and all the things that are part of his nature, his holiness and his grace and his mercy and his love and the greater grasp of his character then, the closer to him you're going to draw. I would think that would be a correlation, wouldn't you believe? If you love God, the more you learn about Him, the more you love Him. I think it's how, in a very small way, it's an illustration of how we feel about our parents. You know, when we are young, we don't know much about them, and we have some pretty firm opinions of what they're like, and perhaps um, think that they don't know much, and then they don't know how to do much, and they, and they don't, they're not too wise and all that, and as you grow and you get older, you get to know them better, and you get to see them in a, better, in a bigger picture, with a better mind, and then you begin your own family, and you look back at your mom and dad, and you think, man, they were pretty smart after all. They, they're a lot smarter than they were when I was growing up. They've really learned a lot, right? So I think it's like that. You, you love the Lord the more you learn about Him. And so, you know, to say that you, we don't need more doctrine, what we need is practical teaching, practical preaching. I mean, preaching has to be practical, but th- th- there's a connection between doctrine and the practical. And the greatest need of the church today is, is not less doctrine, but more. More about God, more about salvation, more about ourselves, more about character, more about the church, more about family. Our greatest need is to know God better, which is the way we do that, is to break open the Word of God and learn from that. And as we looked at the first two verses of our new section, we began to see how to deal with what's false, to sort out the true teachers from the false. And Paul's point in this new section is that there are false teachers and false teaching, and we have to be able to recognize both of them. And so we saw the root of the problem last time from Jesus in John 8, 44, where Satan is identified not only as a murderer, but he's also identified as a liar. Remember this? Uh, one of the manifestations of one of Satan's defining characteristics of lying, then, is the spreading of false teachers. And they are disguised, of course, and they look like they're doing the right thing, and they're going to come across to the undiscerning church as servants of righteousness, but these are the people who besiege the church, and they besiege the gospel and the, and the clear teaching of the word of God, and, and they have done it through all the history of the church. Because wherever God sets down the truth, then Satan comes along and endeavors to sow lies and falsehood and error. And even though the church in Ephesus had to be, by all measures, as we said last time, a really great church, pastored by Paul for three years, a church that, that really no other church could ever measure up to as far as starting, But even though the church at Ephesus had a great history and a great beginning under the ministry of Paul, it was never impervious to false teachers, and so that's why this this letter is written. And Paul warned them in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, as we looked at last time, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. It's not hard for that to happen, beloved. It's just get teachers in the place to teach that have not faithfully studied the Word or have a skewed understanding of what the Word of God says, and you're immediately going down that road, see? It's not hard. Paul says people are going to come in from the outside into the church, believable outside influence, and men are going to arise out of the eldership that leads the church, and they'll be false teachers too. And so Paul writes to Timothy to tell him to stop the false teachers and set things in order in that church. And we saw three principles from verses 3 and 4, and we'll just review them very quickly. And he says in verse, look there, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. 
Paul strongly urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus, which we said it's likely that he was thinking about leaving and desiring to go somewhere else, because, and that's not surprising because it isn't an easy assignment, and that was our first principle in discerning false teaching and false teachers, is that it isn't easy. It's very difficult. Because not only are they deceivers, but they are empowered by the great deceiver. So they're very good at it. In the nuances and the just slight changes and moving away from sound doctrine, and it's very easy to be taken in. And they're also very well practiced at it, so they know what they're doing, they've done it for a while. And number three, the church generally thinks all views are equal, or it's a matter of taste, and it's really not that important. So you're dealing with those three things as you're dealing with false teaching. An apathetic church, they're very well practiced at it, and they're empowered by the great deceiver himself. Now, Paul had already started this process, 1 Timothy 1.19, we saw this in our intro, that he tells Timothy to make every effort to keep uh, the faith and good conscience. And he says, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, so they be taught not to blaspheme. So these were the first two. And apparently Paul himself, when he was there with Timothy, Reminds Timothy that he's already dealt with these two guys and sort of sets that process in motion and then leaves and he says, okay, you've seen what I did. Now you just follow up and follow that example. So Paul says, Timothy, I need you to stay there. I need your presence there so you may instruct certain men, he says, not to teach strange doctrines. Instruct, we saw that was a, a military command, so authority then is needed to stop. And certain men just tell us there weren't that many of them, but there were enough with a, greater, a great enough influence that uh, it had to be dealt with immediately, much like Paul dealt with the first two. And then he tells to command these erring men not to teach strange doctrines. Don't teach strange doctrines. I mean, nothing other than the truth. You don't get to, par to depart from it. You don't get to manipulate it however you want. And that was our, I think, Pauline uh, coined word that the Holy Spirit carries them along to pen, heterodidascaleo. That's... Um, Hetero, another of a different kind, and didaskaleo, teaching. So teaching in any way that departs from what we understand the Word of God to say. And, and the idea represented is teaching of a different kind, something that conflicts with revealed truth, and um, deviating from truth. A, there's a fixed number of beans in the jar. And whatever that is, that's the amount it is. And I think that's the, the main thing. And the verb is present, active, infinitive. So it's our second principle, Divergence in teaching from the clear meaning of Scripture is never allowed. So that's how important it is when you come to teach the Word of God that you are studied up so that you can do it. And that shouldn't surprise us because Paul warned about this in 2 Corinthians 2.17 about the hucksters of the Word, those who corrupt the Word of God, the idea of changing it like a shady salesman to make it palatable, to make it look better, sound better, to manipulate it to accomplish some gain for themselves. We also saw... Paul warned the church in 2 Corinthians 4.2 about those who handle the word dishonestly, who handle the word of God deceitfully, and he uses the word crafty, those who adulterate, corrupt it, change it into a lure, if you will, a bait to a trap, causing people to believe things that are untrue for their own purposes. And so those are all forbidden. It's not surprising. Paul tells Timothy, make sure there's no deviation from the truth. And then we saw Paul wanted Timothy to, to command them to do something else here. The second portion, he says in verse 4, he says, Instruct them not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. 
so don't pay attention to, we saw it was very clear, it means don't turn your mind over to, don't occupy yourself with this. So command them not to teach any other doctrine, nor to give their minds over to fables, endless genealogies, and things that are inflammatory. And, and what we have Timothy instructed to stop is this whole idea of inducing new things to tantalize people. This is very popular in, in false churches today, saying some inflammatory thing, using some inflammatory language to somehow uh, prime the pump, if you will, to get people to, to, uh, to respond in a certain way. And so the previous command, you can't teach whatever you want. And secondly, you can't manufacture something new. You can't approach it unprepared. You can't approach it with a huckster's attitude. You can't manipulate it. And then he gives Timothy and the church one of the symptoms when this, is, this type of teaching is present. Look at the last part of verse 4. He says, which gives rise to mere speculation. We saw that now as the chasing after more and more questions. So the inflammatory types of statements and, 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 and jokes or whatever it is to, to kind of move the congregation to some dirt, certain way and, and away from sound teaching to promote some kind of constant questioning and, and speculation and arguing. And, and we don't really have the specifics of what was being taught, but it's enough to know that it was being taught and it was contrary to the truth. And when this is going on, it is contrary to, and this is very important, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. We're going to look at that in just a minute. It isn't necessary for us to know all the details. Verse 7 tells us uh, something else. Those who were doing it were desiring to be teachers of the law. So we have a little bit of a clue, perhaps, what was going on as we look further into Timothy. And I don't want to go too far that way because that teaching has a lot to come with it. But we looked at some examples of what that may have looked like. False teachers teaching, they're kind of shopping in the Old Testament, if you will, picking and choosing what they want to teach, and then uh, forbidding to marry, abstaining from certain foods, uh, and secret knowledge, and all that kind of thing, which is so popular today. They were still, it was going on back then. All this is false. The administration of God, where we get our word stewardship, is not hidden in a mystery. It's a mystery revealed, and that was our third principle of discernment as it relates to what is right Number three, true teaching won't include mystery, special knowledge, and endless speculation. If you're doing, if the person who you're sitting under is doing that, leave. First Timothy chapter four verse seven confirms, and we're going to see we're not to have anything to do with that. It says actually have nothing to do with those kinds of things, with bring about nothing but ungodliness. The church becomes ungodly under that kind of teaching. And we saw some modern examples of those kinds of things last time, so we won't go back over them. You can catch those if you want to. But uh, uh, on the recorded message. But Paul tells Timothy that they are no longer to occur in the church, and he commands them to stop. Now look at our next verse. Look at verse 5, if you will. Open your Bible. Make sure you're following along. It's very important that you read the Bible, you see what I'm teaching, and you, you get a handle on what I'm uh, going through, making sure that I'm doing it correctly, just like you would do anywhere else. But the goal of our instruction, he says, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. Now look back at verse 5. But the goal of our instruction. So, over and against departing from revealed truth in any way, over and against hucksterism and craftiness and adulterating the Word of God, over and against provocative statements and secret knowledge and all of that, which just promotes endless discussions and questions and speculations. Over and against all of that, what do we do? Well, verse 4 gives us that answer. In verse 4, look back there, at the very end of verse 4, as I said, we're going to come back to it. Which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the ministration of God, 
which is by faith. And that's an, import, that's an important word. That administration is the Greek noun oikonomos. It's the word used for house manager. It's translated stewardship. It's a word we've looked at before when we went through, of course, First and Second Corinthians and also in Romans. It is a word that refers to those who lead the church often. Uh, there's some other places where it applies, but we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, and here's our word, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now when it says stewards of the mysteries, that means something that was hidden and is now revealed, right? So there's no mystery that somebody keeps kind of close to their chest and then kind of deals out as they, as they want to do it so people think they're really smart. It's already been revealed. And Paul has given those who administer the church uh, the job, the Lord has given those who administer the church the job of making sure that these mysteries which are now revealed are clear. So Paul says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is, so if you're administering the mysteries, the revealed truth of the Lord, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Trustworthy. So if you're doing this, you have to do it correctly. Remember we said another word that refers to those who lead the church as under rowers, those who sat below the hall level and brought the ship along. They weren't super important. Those who wait on people, that's the idea. You're bringing it from the kitchen to the table and you don't spill it. It's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Furthering the stewardship of God, which is by faith. All the speculation, all this false teaching, all this departing from the truth, those kinds of things take us away from the faithful thing that's supposed to happen. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Paul says, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. I'm required to do it. The Lord called me into this ministry, and I'm supposed to do it. And woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Then he says in verse 17, For if I do this voluntarily... So if my attitude's correct, I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, if I don't feel like doing it, if it's a difficult place where I am, perhaps like Timothy in uh, Ephesus, or perhaps like many pastors struggle with every single Sunday morning, it's a difficult place. They have to bring the word. If I do it against my will, mark it, I have a, what is it? A stewardship, an administration. I have to discharge this. It's been entrusted to me. So there's a stewardship that is supposed to be carried out, a trust from God calling to the one who he's called to do it. So if you're teaching that class, if you're ministering that church, if you're, if you're pastoring somewhere, you have an administration that you have to carry out. It's not one of the options that you have to not do it. And then you have to do it well. You have to be found faithful. And that's our fourth principle as we were looking through all of this and picking out very, very important parts here. The last part of verse 4, our fourth principle of discernment as it relates to what is right False teaching will short-circuit the main thing the church is supposed to do. So that's not surprising to us, is it? When we see churches that teach falsely, we see the church headed in the wrong direction, don't we? They're not concerned about the main things they're supposed to be doing. And ultimate, the ultimate tragedy of false teaching is that God's work, here it is, which is by faith, is not promoted. It's always something that people do. It's always the, it's always the, the rock star walking back and forth on the stage. That's what he's doing. It's always the band that just looks so cool and does all the cool stuff and makes you feel so good. It's what they're doing. See. And Paul talked about it in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, If indeed you've heard of our word stewardship of God's grace, which 
was given to me for you. Isn't that cool? Mark that. He has a stewardship of God's grace, he says. So God's grace revealed that now has to be given to the church so they'll understand it. Given to me for you. So Paul has the responsibility to manage, that's our word, to administrate as a house manager the ministry of grace. And you could fall back on all those things we just got through saying. I have a stewardship entrusted to me. If I do it voluntarily, I have a reward. If against my will, I have a stewardship. So he has to discharge this faithfully. He has the responsibility to manage that. Later it says it this way in verse 9. He says this. And to bring to light what is the, this is our word, same word, administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So now it's even bigger. So the job then of the minister is to make sure that this mystery which was hidden, which is now revealed, is clearly taught to the church, and they go out and they salt the culture, don't they? Oh, that that was the case with every church, right? That, that the believers who went out, who were taught the Word of God, understood what their job was and their main things that they're supposed to do, and that they go out and salt the culture. That's what we really need. Right? Not, not, uh, not pop, culture, pop culture people trying to quote the Bible to us. They have no idea what they're talking about. That happened this week. You remember you made a couple of headlines. Somebody talking about what Jesus would do. Please. You got a mountain of babies behind you as high as, the, as high as the clouds. And you're trying to tell me what Jesus would do? Listen, there's teaching that brings about sound doctrine and then faithful living, right? That's the whole point. So that we will know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And then Paul says in verse 9 that you can go out and then rulers and authorities in heavenly places will even know what's going on. So here's the thing. The church, and especially its leaders, have been given the responsibility, the stewardship, of administering or managing the truth that salvation and Christian living are by faith. And doctrine makes sure that we know it clearly. And this is the main job of faithful ministers and underrowers. It's the main job. And the tragedy in Ephesus was that some men had obscured and misdirected this faithful discharge of God's administration of this truth. And Paul tells Timothy, put a stop to all of that. And you can see now how big a ripple that causes. The by-faith gospel wasn't going out. The misdirection, the undue emphasis on things that we talked about produced in the people not sound living and faithful living, discharging the truth, but confusion and endless speculation and immersing themselves in things that didn't matter. And people, it produces people who don't think doctrine is all that important. We need more practical teaching. I want to feel good. Don't just read the, don't read the Bible and teach the Bible. And that prevented the conduct in the church order that would promote the by-faith gospel, which would equip the people to go out and do the things they're supposed to do. And this is why the explicitly stated purpose of the letter is to teach the proper conduct of God's household, which is the church. And everything is about this. But he has to correct the wrong heading before we can get back to where they need to be, see? For Paul, everything rides on the conduct and administration, the okonomia of God's household. 
That's the oikos of the church. And, and if the leaders are doing what they should do, teaching faithful doctrine, the church will be equipped to do what it's supposed to do. See, that's the whole thing. And so that leads right then to verse 5. First Timothy 1 5, Paul clarifies his and every other minister's goal or outcome and what that should be. This is so great. And so he makes clear what that administration is. And, and I think you'll find, as you, if you looked on our website, you know that this is our stated goal at Berean. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It says on our website, teaching the word for developing a love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says the goal of our instruction, not all this other mess that's going on, not the stuff I had to take care of when I was there, the stuff you have to take care of now. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If the Ephesian elders, led by Timothy now, put a stop to the teaching of false doctrine, and they return to sound doctrine, then these things will be the outcome. Now, let's look at three things, and let's look at them one at a time. There's three of them. First one is love from a pure heart. So Paul wants, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, Paul wants to see in the church what God wants to see in the church, and what God wants to see in the church is what? Love. Love. Jesus said that men would know believers by what, beloved? Love. And it's essential that the church be marked as those who love their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as their self. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. That's the purpose stated on our Berean webpage too. Our purpose is to do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And following that, he says in this great commandment, this is so great, love does no harm to his neighbor, so love is the, what's the last part? The fulfillment of the law, right. Now, catch this. As he's talking about those who are promoting endless confusion and questions and, and un, it's unclear what they're supposed to be doing and they're on the wrong heading and people are kind of manipulating the gospel and manipulating the truth of God so that it says what they want him to say. And he says really, just in general to them, he says, you want to pick and choose Old Testament? You want to develop some inflammatory doctrine? Just causes endless debates and getting the church off topic and off purpose. You know, it's, it's kind of this back, backing into it. You know, this part of the law is the fulfillment of all of it. You really want to know what the Old Testament says? Jesus said, this is the fulfillment of all the law because love does no harm to his neighbor, so it fulfills all the law. It's not an accident that he's carried along to say that right here. Because Paul describes the ministry of these guys in 1 Timothy 1.7, he says they want to be, remember, teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertion. They're getting everybody off topic on, you know, don't eat this and don't eat that, don't marry and do, you know, all this kind of stuff, which Paul says produces nothing but ungodliness. Instead, they miss the most important part of all of it, the thing that fulfills everything, we're supposed to be marked out by love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the substitution for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. You want the church to look like it's supposed to look? Sound doctrine, faithful teaching will produce as a goal and certainly as an outcome Love. 
the pervasive characteristic of Christians is that they're marked by love. And that is, that is the word agape. That is the love of choice. That's somebody choosing to do it. It's the love of will. A volitionary response. A self-denying, self-sacrificing love. It's the word that isn't defined for us, but it's described. And we've taught this, so I won't go through it over and over again. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, we see love is patient, love is kind. Kind of like um, that describes love. But love is acts of patience. That's how we understood that. If, if you want to demonstrate love to somebody, acts of patience towards them demonstrates love. Love is acts of kindness. That's love. It's not sentiment. It's not you just saying, you know, I really love you, honey, and then you're so self-centered that it just causes trouble in your marriage all the time. Love is patient. Love does acts of patience to people. Love is kind. Love does kind deeds. It's not jealous. So if you're love, you say you love somebody and you're also jealous, that's not love. Love doesn't brag. If you say you love someone but you're also very uh, self-centered and haughty and, and you got a big uh, opinion of yourself, that's not love. Love isn't arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't do things that are improper. Coarse. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. If you give off a history list of everything that your spouse or your child did all in their, all of their past, every time they do something wrong, beloved, you might say you love your, that person, but you don't. Because every time you bring up that history list, you say exactly the opposite of what the Bible says is love. Does that make clear? Is that clear? See, this is, this is revolutionizing. If we only understood one passage in the Bible, if we understood this one, everything would go a lot better around our house. Wouldn't you agree? So if you're holding on a whole list of wrongs suffered, that's not love. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It takes no joy in seeing things that happen that are unrighteous. But it rejoices with the truth. Now look at this, verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Love is a verb expressed. I live my life for the benefit of you. I live my life for the benefit of God. I live my life for the benefit of the lost. Love is described as doing or not doing those kinds of things. And it's not just love. It's love from a pure heart. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, David said, Create in me what? A clean heart, O Lord. In Psalm 24, and verse 3, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for what? They shall see God. Isn't that great? So it's not just a side issue, is it? Remember 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Those students who were with us at camp, part of this passage we studied. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But where does the Lord look? Students, where does He look? On the heart. The heart in Scripture, of course, refers to the center of thought. Heart is the center of man's belief and conviction and moral character. 
It's the center of spiritual desires. It's the center of his aspirations and yearnings. And when the heart, listen to this, when the heart is made pure by the washing of regeneration, and when the heart is single in its devotion through repentant faith in Christ, when the pattern of life then is what we see in Romans 6.17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient, where? From the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, then it's a pure heart. The Lord has purified it. And a pure heart is one devoted to God with an undivided allegiance because it's been washed and cleansed by Christ. You might be thinking right now, man, I don't do, I don't model that very well. Well, beloved, remember that undivided, washed heart, the new you, still clothed in this unredeemed body. It has as its appetites the world's things. And so sanctification begins to do its work when you come to faith and you bring that body into subjection. But the real you is, if you've come by repentant faith and the washing of regeneration, that's a pure heart. Obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. It's a pure heart. And a pure heart is one devoted to God because it's been washed and cleansed by Christ. And number five, this gives us our fifth principle of discernment on how to know what's right. And this is from the positive side, not the negative. Faithful teaching. How are we going to get to the point where we're responding in love with a pure heart? Faithful teaching has as a goal, and we can certainly say an outcome, because if Paul's saying you need to be this way, then obviously that is an outcome that's possible. Love from a pure heart. If you depart from sound doctrine, you teach kind of whatever you want and shift it around however you'd like. If you're just inflammatory in your teaching, you're just trying to promote a bunch of endless discussions and, and guesses and confusion or whatever, you're not going to have as an outcome love from a pure heart. See. So instead of posturing, inflammatory hucksterism, craftiness, luring people in, which has as its outcome confusion and foolishness and mark it, anemic Christianity and endless questioning, Faithful doctrine produces in the church one of the things God wants most in the church, and that is love from a pure heart. Now look at the next one as we prepare to close. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. We understand that. And a good conscience. I love this. And this is something we've gone through pretty extensively before, so I'm just going to recap this for you. The conscience is your God-given self-judging faculty. It's your evaluating ability. It's your inner awareness of the quality of your own actions. And we've talked about this before. It's your ability to evaluate your own actions. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 describes it this way. Speaking of the unredeemed even have the conscience because everyone who's ever been born has a conscience. Verse 15 it says, In that, in this conscience, they show the work of God the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. You see, even the unredeemed have this? Yes. Every person who's ever been created has it. Well, then why do people do the terrible things that they do? Well, they've informed their conscience incorrectly over time. The conscience is the law of God written on the heart of everyone who's ever believed and ever lived. But in order for it to work properly, it has to be properly informed. 
And that's number six. That's our sixth principle of discernment and how to know what is right. From the positive side, faithful teaching has as a goal, and we could certainly say an outcome, a correctly informed conscience. Do you see how important it is to teach faithful doctrine? Because your conscience is not going to be correctly informed. And then you go out in the world and you make all these decisions and make these, make these statements about the world and you don't have the mind of Christ, see? And the conscience isn't properly informed. It's the ability to evaluate a situation and choose the correct course of action because your conscience has been informed by what? Sound doctrine. So Paul's super concerned about the church because they've had false teachers manipulating it and they have guys bringing all these inflammatory statements and just creating confusion and endless questions and it's not producing love and it's not producing a rightly informed conscience. And your conscience will not betray you because it agrees with sound doctrine. It will inform you with a biblical worldview and then you need to submit to it, don't you? And that's part of, that's part of sanctification as you begin to bring the body into subjection. No, that's not what I'm going to do. Have you ever had that discussion with yourself? That's your conscience having a discussion with you. I shouldn't do this. And on the other side, if the conscience is informed by the world because of a vacuum of sound doctrine, which is precisely what happens when you have a vacuum of sound doctrine, then the conscience is informed by the world because constantly in your life you are bombarded by wrong things, aren't you? I mean, if you listen to any kind of music, if you watch any kind of media, any kind of movies, you're going to be bombarded by incorrect thoughts and, and incorrect final conclusions, right? And so if you're not being rightly informed then by your time in the Word each day, by time together under the, under the teaching of the Word, then there's a vacuum of sound doctrine, and then the believer will not be able to make right decisions. Your conscience is going to provide for you peace and joy and freedom from guilt when it's rightly informed, see? You're going to be on the correct course because your conscience has been informed by sound doctrine. And we're going to finish this up and, and, and pick up here next time. But this is what Paul's talking about as he defends himself before Felix. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse four, 24, verse 14. He says this. I love this because it has all the things we just talked about all just wrapped into this, this uh, passage. He says, this I admit to you. So he's, in, he's been in jail and he is uh, before Felix right now. Felix has come and he, he's going to explain why he's there. This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, he's talking about the Jews who were falsely accusing him, that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. So then his conscience is rightly informed. So he can say, verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God. God and before men. So Paul wants sound doctrine taught that he already knows so he can make the right decisions even in pressured situations so the church doesn't end up like false teachers. What kind of conscience do they have? I'm just shadowing this a little bit. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 and 2. This is what false teachers conscience looks like. The spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their conscience as with a branding iron. And we'll comment on more of this later. But correctly informing their conscience? No. What, what are they listening to? Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. All false teaching is an offspring of the false teacher himself, Satan. And so all false teaching is doctrines of demons. Any departure away from faithful teaching, any departure away from faithful scripture teaching is the doctrine of demons. 
It might be just a slight change. It might be just a nuance, this change. It might be kind of directing the church away from the administration of the gospel, which is by faith, just a little bit, getting us off course or whatever. Whatever that is, that's always doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits because wherever the Lord has set the truth down, then lies come in, see? And those who are false teachers, they're filling their thoughts with deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They're listening to that, all false teaching. This violates all the commands we just looked at. And so this is very, very important. Faithful teaching has as a goal, and we can certainly see an outcome, love from a pure heart, a correctly informed conscience, and then this third one, which we don't have time for. We'll get back to it next week. The third thing that Sound Doctrine brings is a, what's it say? A sincere faith. And we're going to look at that next time and see that, that really that's our next principle of discerning what's true by seeing what's positive, it's a sincere faith, an unfeigned faith. It'll be a joy looking at that next time as we celebrate the Lord's table. And so that's where we're headed. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. If you would, we have a, a quick business meeting coming up right after this service. So let's, uh, let's be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for our time together. Very grateful for the blessing it is to be together with one another, to, to rejoice in your word, uh, to a place that where it should be. You've given your word as equal to your own name. Your word of the Lord is tried. And Lord, we understand that it is faithful. It is what we're supposed to teach. It is what we're supposed to understand and put into practice. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll be a church that does that, that every day, as not just on Sunday, where we come together and do corporately what we uh, are to be doing daily, which is to dividing uh, rightly dividing the word of truth, that we might be thoroughly equipped and avoid shame. So, Father, I pray that we'll do that. That is our desire very much, that you uh, will help us to do that. Uh, standing firm in the truth, as we saw earlier, a gentle dogmatism that's not afraid to be found in the truth. It's the enduring word that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you to do, uh, today, too, that we understand uh, what our purpose is in life. I love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, ourself. And in doing that, uh, we understand that we fulfilled the whole law. We also understand that we have a great commission to bring the word of God, to your word, to a lost and dying world. And Jesus told us numerous times that is what we're to do. Help us to be about that. And then as we come together and as we teach ourselves, too, Lord, help us to do that. So love from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Teach your word to accomplish those things. That's our, that's our given written goal, and certainly we can, we can imagine would be our outcome. And so, Father, help us to be steadfast on that. In all the, way, all the places where our teachers teach and all the things that go on, I pray we'll be motivated by those things that are of premier importance to you. We have one audience when we're teaching your word, and it is Jesus, the one who wrote the whole thing. Help us to be pleasing to him. That is certainly my prayer every single day. That as I give out your word, Father, that it will be pleasing to Jesus, that I will have handled it correctly. So, Father, I pray that you'll help us to grow by it. We pray all this, Father, in the name of your Son, whom we long to see, we sing about, and rejoice in, and celebrate at the table. Let us be found faithful as we're waiting for him. Come catch us away. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.